I want to read a passage of scripture as we continue in worship this morning. This is Romans 12, uh, 9 through 13. Let love be genuine. Abhor what is evil. Hold fast to what is good. Love one another with brotherly affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. Do not be slothful in zeal. Be fervent in spirit. Serve the Lord. Rejoice in hope. Be patient in tribulation. Be constant in prayer. Contribute to the needs of the saints and seek to show hospitality. Will you pray with me as we continue in worship? Father, we thank you for the reading of your word. We pray that you would add to the reading and the preaching of your word this morning by your grace and by your spirit. We pray that this fellowship would be one that loves uh, with a genuine love, that we would have a high regard for honoring one another, that we would be fervent in spirit, and that we would do all of that for the glory of your name. And that this, um, as we sit and as we're taught and led this morning, that we would come in low and humble and teachable and ready. And we pray that you do that in our hearts if you haven't already today. If we've been fighting that, I pray that you would help us by your spirit to yield right now to what you have to say to your people this morning. It's in Christ's name that we pray. Amen. Lord, this morning, first we want to lift up a uh, sister church. We want to pray for Highland Terrace Baptist Church. Lord, I want to pray for their pastor, uh, Bobby Atkins. I want to pray for his family, his marriage. I want to pray for his worship. Lord, I know how easy it is to uh, just do a job and to just study and preach and pastor apart from the cross and not for your glory. Lord, I pray that you will guard him from that and guard me from that and the other pastors in this community that we can with the right heart and in response to the amazing cross, preach, pastor, study, and uh, love. Lord, I pray that you will show us what that looks like. Pray for Highland Terrace Baptist Church, Lord. I pray that it will be a a people that are gathered around a message that is life-altering, life-transforming. Lord, I pray that it will be a church that uh, you'll guard from... Uh, division and unrest and stiff neckedness, if that's a word. Just pray for um, pray for a like-mindedness uh, between us and Highland Terrace and the other churches in this community. Thank you so much for shared cross and ample grace. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Never said nakedness in a prayer before. God knows what I meant. I hope you all know what I meant. We have a, um, a handful this morning. Um, we're actually, I had plans on moving on and leaving loving people done and actually finishing it via email this week. And uh, through some encouragement of some other folks and really some prayer and consideration, I've decided to finish it up this morning and I'm glad that we did. I think it's timely. We need to hear what we're going to engage this morning. We've been studying these last few weeks, a couple months now, studying the church the fact that we had, you can throw a rock in nearly any direction in Greenville and hit a church building is really good grounds for us to just stop down, hunker down, and say, okay, let's see what the Bible says church is. If you consider that all it takes is 15 minutes online to get ordained, all it takes is a couple of pieces of wood that you can hammer together in the shape of a cross, and a building that you rent, slap it upside the outside of it, 
how easy you can just call that a church. It makes sense for us to say, wait a second, what does the Bible say church is? Not just so we can discern, should we move or should we, maybe some of you are looking for a church home. This would be a good tool for you. Or maybe it's a tool for those who have found a church home and are maybe, is this where I'm supposed to be after all? It's a good tool for us to discern. What does God say the church is? So these last couple of months, we've been unpacking this sentence. And here's where we are right now in the sentence. First of all, the church is a people. It's not a building. It's not a place you go. It's not an activity on your schedule. It's actually an identity, which that's paradigm changing. The church is a people, an accountable people. We are our brother's keeper. It was a liar and a murderer that said that we're not. We are our brother's keeper. Not as meddlers, but as those who are going to present each other to Christ when he comes back. Hopefully beautiful and shiny and ready. We are an accountable people who are led and leadable. We believe it's to be led by a plural leadership, a plural group of pastors slash, used synonymously, elders. And leadable. It's an accountable people who are led and leadable, taught and teachable with a message that's moving a people. That's not just kind of this parallel activity that's along the life of the church, but is actually directing the life of the church. And the church is loved and loving. That's where we've been the last couple of weeks specifically. Two weeks ago, we considered that the church is loved in the person and work of Jesus Christ. It's not this big gooey, God is love, just kind of sappy, sentimental idea. It actually shows up and it's tangible and it has teeth and hands and feet. And those wrists and feet were pierced and they bled. When you say God is love, the image that needs to come in your mind immediately is the person and work of Jesus Christ and the effectual redemption, redemptive work of the people of God. That's love. We are a loved people. And in response to that, a big preacher word, but it's a good word, inextricably linked to loved is loving. We are a loving people. Last week we considered that love is an outflow of what's been done for you. If it's not in response to the cross, then it's not love. It might be in a, like romance. It might be affection. But it's not love as defined by our Bibles. The love as defined by our Bibles is an outflow of what's been done for you. Outflowing love is characteristic of the church. It's so easy to leave that first part off in view of the cross, I blank. We can just I blank and assume that. And I don't think God wants to be assumed. I don't think Christ who bled and suffered and died wants to be assumed. I think that God is a jealous God. He wants to be remembered in all things. So outflowing love is characteristic of the church. We considered too that this love shows up in a people. As God's love for us showed up in this, while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Somebody actually showed up. (laughs) There's a this. For this is love. There's a this. And that if we're to love as he loved us, then we've got to have a this. Without a this, it's just like this imaginary, sappy, sentimental idea that has no this, has no teeth and hands, and doesn't bleed. 
But the church is to love as Christ loved us and is to have to have a tangible representation. And that tangible representation, what we love the world with, what we love each other with, is what God loved us with, Christ. Sure, we can give somebody a sandwich, and man, we should feed the hungry. We should clothe the naked, help the needy. But if we do all of those things apart from offering the cross, we've staved off the inevitable because they're still dead. They can eat a sandwich and wear a coat and have some stuff they didn't have, but if they have no Christ, we've given them no hope. So we do have an ulterior motive. Man, make no apologies for it. Our ulterior motive is Christ, his finished work, and life in and through him. We considered that it's this love that we love others with is sacrificial and expensive, that it's directed at the undeserving as it's been directed at us, and that he loves us with himself. What we're doing last week and this week in many ways is we're defining love. The world has the definition of love, and it's not the definition that's in here. It's not, not even close. We have kind of a definition and idea built into us too that may come from our environment or it may come from just our flesh, what we like. And that's not necessarily what's in here either. We need this book to define what love is because we trust that it is perfect for every good word. We trust that it's got all the details that we need to understand what love really is. We trust that it was authored by the one who created love, the one who is love, so we can go to this book and understand what love is. So three things we're going to consider today, three things more that the church, and we want to give some, we've kind of painted this contour of love for the church. Today we're going to fill it in a little bit. We're going to look at what really love looks like for the church. Three things. First is in Colossians chapter 3. Go ahead and turn there. Let me give you a a kind of bird's eye view of where we're going scripturally so you can have your uh, bookmarks or whatever you put in your pages there. Colossians chapter 3, Ephesians chapter 5. Those are neighbors. They're close by. Be easy to get to. Those are the first two points. And then the third point is in Ephesians chapter 4 with lots of satellites. So I'll, I'll give you those satellites when we go. But the places where I want everybody to visualize, to see, actually get your eyes on, to grab a Bible in the pew back in front of you, if you didn't bring yours, I want you to see these three passages, the first of which is Colossians chapter 3. I'm going to start in verse 12. I'm actually going to grab the phrase in front of it, Christ is all and in all. Put on then, it's written to a church, the church at Colossae. Put on then, as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassion, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another. And if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other, as the Lord has forgiven you, you also must forgive. And above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. There's lots of things in this passage. I mean, we could spend the entire morning on this passage, but I want to spend just a couple minutes looking at what is charged here. He tells them to be compassionate, kind, humble, meek, patient, forgiving each other. But he says, above all these, put on love. And he says that love, in many ways, is the glue for all those things. Love orchestrates these things so so that they make sense. Love weaves them together so there's a meaningful integrity. Apart from love, compassion has no meaning. 
Apart from love, kindness is just left by itself. It means nothing. Love actually weaves it together. Love like compassion. Here's the key where I want you to go is seeing that the church has to put this on. Love like compassion, kindness, meekness, patience, and forgiveness must be put on. This seems to come up so often. Just the realization that things like this don't come natural is somehow helpful. Oh, oh yeah, this isn't natural. Well, I'm not made this way. Well, no, duh. (laughs) I'm not made to be this toward other people. Exactly, neither am I. Neither is anybody else. The only thing that comes natural for me, the only thing I don't have to put on is my skin and sin. That's what comes natural for me is sin. But Paul charges him here, he says, this church here, he says, put this on. Put on love seems to imply that there's some, some sort of effort involved. As you go grab this outfit, this garb called love, and you put it on. There's something that you actually have to don. Look at verse 15 through 17. We'll kind of see what it looks like. <clears throat> what does it look like to put on love? Here's the first piece. Let peace of Christ rule in your hearts. That's one item of clothing. Letting peace rule. To which indeed you were called in one body and be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. There's another article of clothing. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. Teaching and admonishing one another. There's some more clothing. And in all wisdom singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. With thankfulness in your hearts to God. You want to know what it looks like to put this clothing of love on? Here's a few snapshots. Letting peace rule in your hearts. We do that whether you realize it or not. The Lord's Supper is a great tool for us now. It's an act of worship that we used to kind of hit every few months or so. And we just kind of came under conviction that why don't we do this every time we gather if one of the impacts or one of the realities of the Lord's Supper is that we're to keep short accounts with each other. How do we introduce Lord's Supper over the last few years, those of you who've walked with us? Reconcile with your brother and then come back and eat this meal with God? Why don't we do that every week? Why don't we let peace rule? Why don't we keep short, short accounts with each other? That's putting on love and its work and its effort. And then letting the word dwell in you. Why do we urge you to dine on God's word week by week? Why do we urge you to eat these messages? Because that's how you put on love. If you're not eating these, this word, there's no way to put on love. You can put on a show. You can put on an act. But you can't put on love as biblically defined if you're not dining on it. Teaching one another in small groups is one context where we're doing that now. In dens, hopefully, as shepherds are teaching their families. And their families are encouraging, in some ways, teaching the shepherds. That's to put on love. Admonishing one another. We're going to come back to that later. And then lastly, singing songs with thankfulness in your heart. You realize that music fans the flames of putting on love? I know many of y'all, y'all are here in some ways because of the music, the song, the worship and song that just flows out of here every week that we engage week by week. We are amazingly blessed with musical gifting. You need to enjoy that. That fans the flames of love that we put on. 
singing songs with one another, making music in our hearts. The clothing for the saints is love, and this, you've got to understand, does not come naturally. If you say, I'm not made for that, well, neither am I. And neither is the person to your left or to your right or to the front or to your back. There's effort involved in putting on love. And these are just a few snapshots that I shared right here. The second thing, Ephesians chapter 5. The second thing that's true of the the church, the first is that the church puts on love. The second is the church walks in love. Let's start in Ephesians chapter 5. Just looking at verse 1 and 2. Therefore, church at Ephesus, be imitators of God as beloved children and walk in love. As Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. The first thing there you have to engage when we're talking about love and putting it on and walking in it is that we have to imitate God like children imitate who? Their parents and their environment. Some of y'all, it's scary where we see your kid, you showing up in your kid's as they imitate you with a mannerism or a smile, and you know how that happens is because they're saturated with your environment. Or you see them imitating friends at school, and it's because they're saturated with that environment, how we, how we laugh, how we smile, even how we get in bed. I used to make fun of Christy because she steps into bed, and I found that her dad does the same thing. We're camping, and I watched her dad step into bed. It's the weirdest thing I've ever seen. Who steps into bed? She's a bed stepper. She's just imitating. And it happens when a child's environment is his mom and his dad and his family. And we need to imitate Christ, imitate God, and be students of his love. So when he says, walk this way, we know what that way looks like. When he says, walk in love, be an imitator of me, we know what his love looks like because we're just imitating him. The thing that I want y'all to really get here too is that this picture of walking is something that we need to really connect to. And it's not something that's going to come naturally for us. In their context, when they were charged with walking in love, they would have thought that means every day. Because where did they walk? Everywhere. They walked to the well to get some water. They walked to the market to buy some food. They didn't have refrigerators and things like that. They could stuff food in. For them, walking meant every single day. We walked to the doctor. We walked to our friends. We walked to the town square. We walked to the gate. We walked to our, our, our family member's house. We walk everywhere. Really, the closest thing we have would be to drive in love. Where do we drive? We drive everywhere, unlike other places like Germany where they walk a lot. We drive everywhere. Our closest word might be driving, but maybe a better word since we don't drive to the mailbox, most of us. We don't drive to the kitchen. Maybe a better word would be to breathe in love. Because we breathe, man, every single day, just like they walked every single day in every single place, wherever they went. It's something that they had to do. They would have heard walk in love means daily like you breathe. That would be a good translation for us to really connect with what's being said here. It's something that we live and we don't stop. 
And if you're sitting here today and you're connecting to this image of breathing, you know that you can't rely on yesterday's breath, can you? You breathe today. You walk in it today and you hope to breathe tomorrow. And the people of God just breathe love because it's who we are. We don't live on yesterday's laurels. Man, I used to love Christ. I used to love like Christ. Remember how I used to serve in the children's ministry? I'm going to live and land on that. The church walks in love today while it's still today because it's like who we are. It's like breathing. We are to walk in his love today. And the third thing where we're going to spend most of our time this morning is in Ephesians chapter 4. In view of the cross, the church truths one another and speaks the truth in love. Look at two passages, chapter 4, verse 15. Paul's writing to the same church, the same church that he charged with walking slash, in our terms, would be breathing in love, speaking the truth in love. He says, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head into Christ. And then in verse 25, having put away falsehood, let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor, for we are members of one another. Those two passages, I want to look first at verse 15. Verse 15, translated in the original language, would be to truth one another in love. Our translators have put speaking in there because of verse 25. It just seems to make sense in context. And plus, we don't have that word in our language, truthing one another. Actually, a verbal form of truth, that's what he's talking about here. Truthing one another in love. Being true with one another in love would be a good way to translate it. The church is true with one another in love. And in verse 25, we speak the truth with one another in love. The reason I'm spending the most time on this this morning is because this is probably the most unnatural view on love that we have. What, what we're about to engage is the most unnatural thing. And instead of being viewed as loving, is usually viewed as the opposite. In the eyes of the world, what we're about to engage is usually viewed as that's mean. That's harsh. How dare the church speak the truth in love? How dare the church truth me in love? Let me show you what I'm talking about. We're going to look at Christ first. Look at Luke chapter 12. This is where we're going to look at a few or many satellites. <clears throat> so if you really want to turn with me, you can. You don't have to though, but you can. Luke chapter 12 is the first passage. We know that Christ loved the poor and the needy and the hungry and the lame because he's healing people. He's, he's just multiplying loaves and fishes. He's... he's um, helping those that have needs. We know that Jesus loved in that way, but have you considered that he loved by speaking the truth and what that actually looked like? What we're going to consider in these next few passages, we're going to consider what Christ's love looks like. And I want you to be prepared for your view of love to transform and change and really to become more biblical. Look at Luke chapter 12. I'm going to start in verse 49. Jesus, these are his words. He says, I came to cast fire on the earth. I came to cast fire on the earth and would that it were already kindled. I have a baptism to be baptized with and how great is my distress until it's accomplished. Do you think I've come to give peace on earth? Most would say, well, yeah, right? He says, no, 
That's not a misprint. Jesus said, I haven't come for peace on earth. I've come rather for division. For from now on in one house there will be five divided, three against two, and two against three. They will be divided. Father against son and son against father. Mother against daughter and daughter against mother. mother Mother-in-law against her daughter-in-law. And daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. Man, that's pretty detailed. And that's pretty controversial. Wait, wait a second. That doesn't sound like Jesus. That doesn't sound very loving. But it says he came not for peace. He came for division, bringing fire. You know what that fire is? That fire is the truth. That fire is the loving truth and the truthing love. And that fire has a consequent judgment. Just stay right there and I want, to, I want you to listen to this. I want you to listen to this reality, this underdeveloped reality in the church or in the world. It's underdeveloped in the church. Listen to this passage in John chapter 3, beginning in verse 19. Don't turn there, just listen. This is Jesus speaking. He said, and this is judgment. The light has come into the world and people love the darkness rather than the light because their deeds were evil. You want to know why they didn't make him king? Why they crucified him? Because the world's deeds are evil. And the world doesn't love the light. It says, everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his deeds should be exposed. But whoever does what is true comes to the light, so that it may be clearly seen that his deeds have been carried out in God. It's the truth that divides. It's the truthing love and the loving truth that actually brings division. He says, I'm bringing fire. Anybody ever been burned? Is that comfortable? Oh, that soothes me so much. Thank you for bringing fire. Thank you for bringing truth that just seems to divide me and pierce me to the marrow. Man, he's preparing them. He's speaking to his disciples here too. Saying, men, make no mistake. I didn't come for peace. I came for division. God is love. And this is what love is saying. I came for division. Let me show you. It actually happens too. Listen. John chapter 7 verse 40. When they heard these words, what words? Where he shouts out, I'm the living water, or come to me and have living water. When they heard these words, a.k.a. fire, some of the people said, this really is the prophet. Others said, this is the Christ. But some said, is the Christ to come from Galilee? Has not the scripture said that the Christ comes from the offspring of David and comes from Bethlehem, the village where David was? So there was a, what, a division among the people over him. Man, do we even know what love looks like? Our natural minds come against this and go, well, I must be confused. I must be, re- I must be misreading this. He didn't come for peace, but for division. And you see it. John chapter 9, verse 16. Some of the Pharisees said, this man is not from God, for he does not keep the Sabbath. But others said, how can a man who's a sinner do such signs? And there was a division among them. John chapter 10, right after he preaches the sermon on being the good shepherd. And there was again a division among the Jews because of what these words. Truthing love and loving truth. Fire. Wait a second, man, do we even know what love is? That's just one example. 
Isn't love just supposed to bring everybody together like the Coke commercial where we all link arms and sing together? Remember that? Some of you older folks that were around when that commercial was around? <laughs> Worldwide kumbaya? Isn't that what love does? Man, I was thinking about some of the things that are just on the tip of our tongue when we think about love. <clears throat> the Beatles wrote a song. Most of you can probably think of the name of it. What's the name? There you go. Okay. <clears throat> Excuse me. Here's the words. Love, love, love. Love, 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 love. <laughs> Listen for what's actually being said about love here. Okay. This is like a, a Blackberry commercial now where they're just playing this song over and over and over again. There's nothing you can do that can't be done. Nothing you can sing that can't be sung. Nothing you can say, but you can learn how to play the game. It's easy. Nothing you can make that can't be made. No, no one you can save that can't be saved. Nothing you can do, but you can learn how to, how to be you in time. It's easy. All you need is love. All you need is love. All you need is love, love. Love is all you need. Love, love, love. Love, love, love. All you need is love. There's nothing you can know that isn't known. Nothing you can see that isn't shown. There's nowhere you can be that isn't where you're meant to be. It's easy. All you need is love. All you need is love. Man, I'm thinking about this thing that just rolls off our tongue and pops into our head when we think about love or a song about love that actually says absolutely nothing. I mean... It's a catchy tune. Who can't? I mean, I, I agree. But it says nothing. There's no substance there. I don't know what has actually been said. That's the world's view on love. It's just this notion, this idea, this sentimental gooey stuff. That it's all we need to find who we are and to, to do whatever we want to do. And Jesus is presenting love as differently. He's presenting love with the truth. Loving truth and speaking the truth in love and truthing others. And what's the impact? It's not worldwide kumbaya. I'm sorry. It's not all we need is love. It's division. Look at Luke 14. <clears throat> Luke 14, verse 25. Now great crowds accompanied him, and he turned and said to them, crowds of followers behind Jesus now. Envision this. It's so easy for us to just read these words and just separate ourselves from it and just let them be words on a page. But I beg you to become part of the crowd in these next couple minutes. Just imagine being a crowd following Christ. Imagine setting your chore list aside on a Saturday and saying, I, you know what, honey? Let's not do our chores today. Let's go listen to this Jesus guy. Let's go see what he has to say. That'll be good. And here's what he says. He turns to the crowd. If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, and even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. What? What, what did he just say? That was strong. Wow, that was potent. That was poignant. That had chest hair on it. Whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. Spoken to the crowds, God who is love, God the Son, says these words. You can't even follow me unless in contrast to your white hot love for me, you hate everybody else. 
I mean, he's, he's being extreme here. Because love for Jesus better be extreme or you can't be his disciple. There's no lukewarm option. And this is what Jesus said. And man, it's strong. He says, you cannot be my disciple. If you have no cross that you're bearing, you cannot be my disciple. Just imagine for a moment being someone in this crowd who set your chore list aside on a Saturday. Do you feel soothed? Oh, that's so soothing. So glad I came out. Man, I see it in how y'all have reacted today. You're kind of like swallowing hard, like, whoa. I don't know that I've ever really let the impact and weight of that hit me. He's speaking the truth to them in love. Don't let these be words on a page. Climb into this and let it hit you. Is this truth speaking? Is this loving for Christ to communicate what it actually means to follow Christ? I think it is. Is it hard to hear? Yeah, it is. Our natural minds hate this sort of confrontation. The natural man says, how dare ye? Speak to the hand. I'm going back to my chore list. I love my wife. I don't need you. Missing the whole point. Doesn't even go there. Doesn't even give it room to penetrate to marrow. Mm, no thanks. That's harsh. She's mean. Man, I think he's speaking the truth in love, even if it wasn't soothing. Because truth, according to my Bible, our Bibles, pierces to the bone, down to the marrow, discerning the thoughts and intentions of our hard, dark hearts. And that doesn't always soothe. In fact, usually it doesn't. He loved them, though, with the truth. Look at Matthew 8. Oh, we're defining love, man. Paradigm breaking, shattering. Matthew chapter 8. Looking in verse 18. Now, when Jesus saw a great crowd around him, he gave orders to go over to the other side. And a scribe came up and said to him, Teacher, I will follow you wherever you go. I just want you to know, if somebody comes up to me or one of the other elders and says that, man, I will follow you wherever you go. There's something in that that says, Oh, great. I'm really going to be, you're going to be a true teammate. I'm looking forward to this. Let me kind of say, Oh, awesome. Good job. Listen to what Jesus says. Jesus says, you know what, scribe? Foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. Scribe, if you're following me for the perks, guess what? Mm, it's not very many. There's no creature comforts in following me. Because in following me, I'm not your heavenly bellboy that's just going to give you what you want. I'm not a means to your end of happiness and comfort and satisfaction I am the end so if you're coming for a nice comfy bed come to the wrong savior look what he says next another disciples come to him another one of the disciples his followers we don't know if it's one of the immediate disciples it may have been says Lord let me first go and bury my father and Jesus said to him follow me and leave the dead to bury their own dead 
Let the weight of that hit you. Talking to a seeker and a follower and saying, you know what? Let your family bury the dead. Come walk with the living. Let the dead bury the dead. It's urgent. You come walk with me right now. Climb into this story. Imagine in this context, in our context here, imagine that a pastor doesn't go to a funeral, a community funeral from someone who's known because they're actually studying, preparing to preach on Sunday. Can you imagine? Well, couldn't he do that another time? He should have been at that funeral. Imagine that. That's the, the gravity of what's being said. It would be like a local pastor saying they could not attend a funeral because they were preparing to preach to the living. How does that sit with you? Harsh? Jesus is loving them with these words right here. He's loving them with the words of the urgency of following him. Look at Matthew chapter 16. Man, we've got to redefine love. We've got to redefine love. Starting in verse 21. <clears throat> this is a good one. I'm just imagining if I were to do something like this. I'm not wanting to. Just imagining what, what would happen. Listen to what happens. Or what story is. From that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. And Peter took him aside and said, Oh, no, you didn't. That's not going to happen to you. Far be it from you, Lord. This shall never happen to you. And Jesus looks at a man that's left his fishing boat. A man that's left his family and friends and everything to follow him. Grab the eyes. Imagine two men looking at each other. And imagine Jesus looking Peter in the eyes and saying these words. Get behind me, Satan. Anybody ever called you Satan? You ever had your pastor call you Satan? Get behind me, Satan. Satan, you're a hindrance to me, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God. Ouch. But you're setting them on the things of man. When you climb into the story and let it be more than just words on a page, and you let it be a real story where two people, the God-man and Peter, looked each other in the eye, and Peter said these words. God, Jesus, God the Son, said these words to Peter. And you let the weight of it hit you, then you go, ooh, that was harsh, Jesus. That was mean. But Jesus loved this man with the truth, the man that he would build his church on. He loved him with the truth and said, get behind me. Your heart is set on the things of man, not on the things of God. He spoke the truth in love to the man that he would build the church on. John chapter 8. John chapter 8. There was too much at stake for him not to. You got to get that. There was too much at stake for him to glad hand Peter. Do you understand that? There was too much at stake for him to stroke Peter. Oh, Peter, it's okay. You'll figure it out. <clears throat> glad hand. See you next Sunday. There was too much at stake. The cross was at stake. The whole future of the church was at stake. So he shot real straight to the point where we could even look at it and say, that's harsh. Look at John chapter 8. 
This chapter is the chapter that I call the revival gone bad. The, the sermon started around chapter 8, verse 12. By verse 30, the revival is in full swing, man. They have won the lost. He's preached on being the light of the world. And look at verse 30. As he's saying these things, many believed in him. Awesome. The front rows are filled with people filling out their decision cards. They've got those little short pencils that are never sharp enough. They've got their decision cards, and they're mm, scribbling. And the disciples are saying, yes, man, our numbers have been doubled today. Whew. But Jesus kept on preaching. And listen to what he said. So Jesus said to the Jews who had believed in him. I mean, he's speaking. He's not shifting the audience. He's speaking to those who had said, hey, I'll fill out a card. I'm on the team. And he says, if you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples. And you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. Seems harmless enough, but if you were a Jew and you're hearing someone imply that you're not free... You're like, oh, no, you didn't. And that's exactly what they did. They responded with, oh, what, 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 did, what did you say? We are offspring of Abraham, and we have never been enslaved to anyone. How is it that you say you will become free? Oh, no, you didn't. They put down their little pencil. They put their decision card to the side, and Jesus then explains. He says, truly I say to you, everyone who commits sin is a slave to sin. Slave does not remain in the house forever. The son remains forever. He goes on explaining. And then in verse 39, actually verse 38, he says, I speak of what I have seen with my father, and you do what you have heard from your father. Here's where it's about to go south. And they answered him, Abraham is our father. And he says, if you were, doing it, if you were Abraham's children, you would be doing what Abraham did. But now you seek to kill me, a man who has told you the truth that I heard from God. This is not what Abraham did. You are doing what your father did. And look in verse 44 if you want to see who they're saying his father is. You are, your, you are of your father the devil, and your will is to do your father's desires. The revival just went south from that point. It's, I mean, it's just catastrophe. And it ended, look down in verse 59. So they picked up stones to throw at him. They set down their decision cards and their little pencils and they picked up rocks to stone him. And he loved them with the truth, telling them that you are a slave to sin and your daddy is the devil and your faith is in your lineage and your confidence is in your flesh. He spoke the truth to them and how did it turn out? They wanted to stone him. But yet he loved them with the truth. Man, we got to let this Bible define what love is. And it's totally different from what you think it is. It's totally different from what the world says it is. All we need is love, right? It's totally different from worldwide kumbaya. Man, it pierces. And it discerns the thoughts and intentions of the heart. But Jesus loved them with the truth, speaking the truth in love and truthing them in love. That's what the church does. I want to show you too. I'm not done. It wasn't just Jesus. Let me show you another one. Galatians chapter 5. Shifting lovers. Galatians chapter 5. Shifting lovers to look at a lover named Paul. A man, a man who loved God and loved his people and loved the lost. 
The book of Galatians, kind of the big picture of Galatians, is it's a book written to a church in Galatia, and there was a problem in the church in Galatia. There was a group of people that had snuck in. They were called the Judaizers. And they had a heritage of Judaism. And what they tried to do is they were trying to import circumcision into the faith. They were saying that you had to be circumcised and have faith to be saved. And Paul's like, Paul, who's a Jew among Jews? Says, oh, no, you didn't. Oh, no, it doesn't. And Paul deals very sharply with the circumcision or the Judaizers. And here's the most pointed thing that he said to them in verse 12 of chapter 5. He says, I wish those who unsettle you, these Judaizers who say grace plus something, do you see it? Would emasculate themselves. Ouch. That's pretty grotesque, Paul. That's a grotesque image. Mm, talk to the hand. No, no, thank you. Was Paul loving them in providing this grotesque image? I wish those who unsettle you would emasculate themselves. In other words, I hope when the next circumcision comes up that the knife slips. Was Paul loving them with this image to show them what grace plus anything looks like? I think he was because grace plus anything is grotesque. Don't add anything to grace. It's as gross as this image that Paul provided. Thank you, Paul, for loving us with this image. It'd be so easy for somebody to say, man, that's harsh. Mm, that's unloving. He loved them with the truth. Don't add anything to grace because it gets real gross real quick. Here's another picture, 1 Corinthians. Chapter 5. Verse 1 and 2, starting out. Paul's writing to the church at Corinth, and he says, It's actually reported, church, that there's sexual immorality in the church, and of a kind that it's not tolerated even among pagans. For a man has his father's wife. We don't know if that's stepmother or actual mother, but it's repulsive. And Paul says, and you guys are arrogant? Ought you not rather mourn? Let him who has done this be removed from among you. Hmm? He doesn't say, let's, let's, go, let's go talk to him and see if we can reason through this. He says... Have this person removed from among you. Look at verse 5. You're to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of his flesh so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. And in fact, let me go on beyond that in verse 11. Church at Corinth. Don't even associate with anyone who bears the name of brother if he's guilty of sexual immorality or greed or is an idolater, a reviler, a drunkard, a swindler, not even to eat with such a one who says that they're confessing Christ with the same mouth that they're guzzling are swindling, are idolizing. What have I to do with judging outsiders? Is it not those inside the church whom you are to judge? God judges those outside. Purge the evil person from among you. Man, y'all got to know that love does not wink at sin. In the world's view, it does. The world views love as this grandfatherly sort, this he's got a cup of cocoa, he's got real bushy eyebrows. 
And he, oh, grandson, it's okay. Come on up here, crawl on my lap. That might be grand. That's a cool grandfather. I like the thought of that too. But that's not God. God is holy and just and righteous. And he will not wink at sin. Paul doesn't wink at it either. It's a worldly view that winks at it. Love reckons with sin. You see that? Love reckons with sin. Beatles left that out. The world leaves that out. The church usually leaves that out. It's true. Families usually leave that out. Love reckons with sin. Titus chapter 3. I want you to know, too, I'm making a strong case for this this morning because it's just so unnatural. It's just so unnatural for us. We have this thing in us, I think. The church does this frequently. Where we kind of have this thing where we're going to say, you know what, I'm going to grab a piece of Scripture that helps me fudge. That's the the word Steve used yesterday. We elders got away and we were talking some about this. And I think the verse that comes to mind that people just so mishandle is, you know, there's therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. So talk to the hand. Talk to the hand. There's therefore now no more condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. So talk to the hand. And what they're saying is, I want to fudge and I want you out of my business. Not recognizing that there's therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus is a judicial decision. Because of the work of Christ, you are reckoned righteous right now. And what that is, it's a covering that covers you while he's purifying you, while he's sanctifying you through the other people of God who are walking with you in faith, who are, in fact, your keepers for the right motive for the beauty of the bride. Man, it's true there is therefore now no more condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus because he's reckoned it that way. He's imputed us with righteousness, and that's why it's so not in keeping for the people of God to live for your own passions and to do whatever you want to do. And love says, that's not okay. It's not okay to do that in view of that. Look at Titus chapter 3, verse 10. Paul's writing to a pastor, young pastor. And he says, young pastor, as for a person who stirs up division, he's not talking about in the neighborhood association. He's not talking about at work. You know that guy that kind of pits everybody against each other in the workplace? He's talking about in the church. As for the person in the church who stirs up division, after warning him once and then twice, have nothing more to do with him, knowing that such a person is warped and sinful. He is self-condemned. Does that sound like love? All we need is love, right? Does that sound like... The world goes... Most of the church goes, what are you talking about, man? How dare anybody confront and warn somebody for being divisive? That's just part of church, isn't it? We've settled. Church after church, year after year, has just settled and said, we can't possibly do that. We want to be loving. Not realizing that the loving thing to do is to confront them and to warn them. These words, realize, are written by the same guy that said, put on love. 
Paul. The same guy that said, walk in love, Paul. The same guy that said, speak the truth in love and truth one another in love. Same dude. He's also the same dude that said, remove that man from among you. It says, warn this person twice, once, twice, and then remove them from among you. Man, love confronts. Love confronts. The passage that we read earlier, this Colossians passage, don't turn there, just listen to it. We read it earlier where it's the passage talking about putting on love. We read the rest of it, but listen specifically what's right in the middle of it. We put on love which binds everything together. Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts. Let the word of Christ dwell richly in you, teaching and admonishing one another. That word admonish admonish is warn. That word admonishes, reprove, caution, reprimand even, rebuke, chide. Those things are a ministry of love, people of God. We need these. We want these. Do they hurt? You bet they do. You think Peter said, oh, that soothes me when you call me Satan. I love how you do that, Jesus. You're so silly. Man, I can't imagine that he wasn't wrecked. But he needed the truth. And Jesus loved him with the truth. Paul has loved these guys with the truth. And we love the divisive person with a warning. In hopes that they'll repent and not do this to Christ's bride. Just a couple more. We'll be like a Puritan this morning. We're just going to keep going. That's what Puritans do. They just keep one example after another. Golly. We need a couple more. 1 John chapter 4. This is familiar to us because we were just here last week. 1 John chapter 4. This is the passage where he said, In this is the love of God was made manifest. In this is love, not that we've loved, but that he sent his son to be propitiation for us. In verse 20. He says, if anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he's not being truthful. That's not what it says. He says, he's a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he's seen cannot love God whom he's not seen. Take in the gravity of what's being said here. I had a conversation with somebody Wednesday night. And they were sharing that their family had an encounter over the dinner table having to do with this passage from Sunday. They listened. And brothers were arguing and fighting back and forth. And, and I don't know exactly how the conversation went, but I can imagine how it went. Hey, boys, this is two parents that are shepherding biblically. Hey, boys, do y'all love God? Oh, well, yeah, Mom and Dad, you know we do. Boys, you are liars. If you can't love your seen brother, you are lying when you say you love the unseen. And this mom who's telling me this said, the boy's eyes got that big. She was being a harsh mommy and daddy. That is just so mean. Man, her boys needed that. They loved their boys with the truth that day over the dinner table. Man, do you hear that? He called them a liar. You are a liar if you say that. Sometimes love says, it's not okay to do what you're doing. It's not okay to be how you're being. It's not okay to keep chasing what you're chasing. 
Love says it's not okay sometimes. In fact, love often says it's not okay because there's too much at stake for us to chase that. Two more, and I say my favorites for the last. Two more, Acts chapter 8. These are my favorites. They're just beautiful. Acts chapter 8. I'm going to start reading while you're turning. Just pick up with me. I'm starting in verse 9. This is unfolding of the early church. A guy who's once called Satan is kind of a main player in here. A guy named Peter. But there was a man named Simon who had previously practiced magic in the city and amazed the people of Samaria saying that he himself was somebody great. This guy was like a like famous he was a magician. Everybody knew who he was. And his old Simon the magician, look at him. They all paid attention to him from the least to the greatest, saying, This man is the power of God that's called great. Shazam. He probably had a cape. And they paid attention to him because for a long time he had amazed them with his magic. Voila. And then, and when they believed, Peter, or excuse me, Philip, as he preached good news about the kingdom of God in the name of Jesus Christ, they were baptized, both men and women. And listen, even Simon himself believed. And after being baptized, he continued with Philip. He took his cape off and put it aside and said, I, I'm going to follow the real amazing work. He walks away from the magic tricks and he goes and follows Philip. And seeing signs and great miracles performed, he was amazed. He's a new believer. All right, think of some of our relatively new believers in the body. Scott Kirkwood, Jeremy Kieschnick, Coleman A. Vance. Just imagine, let's just climb into this, a new believer. Now, when the apostles at Jerusalem heard that Samaria had received the word of God, they sent to them Peter and John, who came down and prayed for them that they might receive the Holy Spirit. For he had not yet fallen on any of them, but they had only been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Now, watch for Simon. And they laid their hands on them, and they received the Holy Spirit. Now, when Simon saw that the Spirit was given through the laying on the apostles' hands, he offered them money, saying, Give me this power also, that anyone on whom I might lay lay hands may receive the Holy Spirit. But Peter said to him, Oh, Simon, I know you're a new believer. Don't, Don't go there. We'll talk about that later. Listen to what Simon, or what Peter says. He says, Simon, may your silver perish with you because you thought you could obtain the gift of God with money. You have neither part nor lot in this matter for your heart is not right before God. It's not just a judgmental reckoning. There's also redemption. Listen to what he says next. Repent, Simon. Repent, therefore, of this wickedness of yours and pray to the Lord that if possible, the intent of your heart may be forgiven you. For I see that you are in the gall of bitterness and in the bond of iniquity. And listen to what Simon says. Oh, man. Pray for me to the Lord that nothing of what you've said may come upon me. Simon's always been presented as this major goober that's easy to dismiss. But I appreciate how he responded. He didn't say, Peter... Talk to the hand. Peter confronted him and spoke the truth in love. That's the character of the church. Speaks the truth in love because there's too much at stake not to. The last example is right here on this page. And this is the sweetest one. Stephen, 
a deacon and an amazing preacher, is preaching his first and his last sermon, at least the first one that we have recorded. We know for sure it's his last sermon. He just unfolds the redemptive story, just unpacks it. I mean, an amazing exposition showing, I think, hopefully every deacon over the ages a really high view of your role as a deacon, of having a grasp on the Scripture. And then verse 51, mean old Stephen says, you stiff-necked people. He's calling them back to 1,500 years earlier when Moses and God agreed, yep, they're a stiff-necked people, proud and hard to lead. He says, you're a stiff-necked people. You're uncircumcised in heart and ears. You've never been cut in heart and ears. You've never been broken in heart and ears. You've never been pierced to your marrow with the truth. It says, you always resist the Holy Spirit as your fathers did, so do you. Which of the prophets did you not persecute? And they killed those who announced beforehand the coming of the righteous one whom you have now betrayed and murdered. You who received the law as delivered by angels and did not keep it. And when they heard these things, can you hear incensed? They were enraged. They ground their teeth at him. And left right there, you could think, man, Stephen was sure unloving, wasn't he? He was so harsh. But then look at the last verse in this passage. It says, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. That man that called them stiff-necked, that man that shot really straight with them and reckoned with them with the truth, loved them enough while he's getting hit in the head with rocks that they are throwing to say, Lord, don't hold this sin against them. Man, do we even know what love is? We have a lot to learn about love. Love of the church speaks the truth. In love, we have got to jettison the world's definition of love and let our Bibles develop a robust, Christ-like love that truths one another. That speaks the truth in love because there's too much at stake to just glad hand and stroke each other. There's too much at stake. To love like Christ is to embrace that sometimes the loving thing to do is to say, that's not okay. This is not okay. And I'm not going to bail on you. I'll walk with you through it. And I'll help you not do this. For the glory of God, in view of the cross, this is not okay. I'll share a quote with you as I end. It's a book I read recently. It's called The Reformed Pastor. I guess it's been a year now. By Richard Baxter. This book is really about reforming the pastorate. Hence the reformed pastor. It's not reformed as in a Calvinist pastor. It's reformed as in transforming the pastorate to be who we're supposed to be. It's an amazing book that I think every pastor should read. There's a quote in here I'll share with you if I can find the page. Yeah. He's writing to other pastors. And this may be hard to follow, but do your best. I'll probably send it out to you in an email also. 
He's writing to other pastors urging them to be true and faithful and to call their people to repentance and to shoot lovingly straight with their people and not just stroke them. It says, because of our faithful endeavors, because our, because our faithful endeavors are of so great necessity to the welfare of the church, pastors, and the saving of men's souls that it will not consist with the love to either to be negligent ourselves in shooting straight or silently to connive at negligence at others, to be okay with what's not okay in others. He says, if thousands of you were in a leaking ship and those that should pump out the water and stop the leak should be sporting or asleep or even but favoring themselves in their labors to the hazarding of your all, would you not awaken them to their work and call on them to labor as for your lives? If you're all on a sinking ship, wouldn't you say, hey, get up. And if you use some sharpness, Stephen, Peter, Paul, Jesus, John, if you use some sharpness or importunity with the slothful, would you think that man was in his wits who would take it ill of you and accuse you of pride? Self-conceitedness or unmannerliness to presume to talk so saucily to your fellow workmen? Or that should tell you that you wrong them by diminishing their reputation? Is how ridiculous is all of that when your ship is sinking? Would you not say, this work must be done? Are we all are dead men? Is the ship ready to sink? And do you talk of reputation? Or had you rather hazard yourself and us than hear of your slothfulness? This is our case, brethren. The work of God must needs be done. Man, the church loves with the truth. It's who we are. God, I want to be this man. I want to be this preacher. I want to be this husband. I want to be this father. I want to be this friend. Lord, I pray that whatever the cost of my reputation, that you will find me speaking the truth in love with gentleness and respect. I pray the same for Brad and Steve. I pray the same for our deacons. I pray the same for our small group leaders. I pray the same for our fathers and single mothers. I pray the same for our young single people that will be characterized as truth speakers. Loving truth speakers. Lord, I pray that you'll find us for the right reasons for the beauty of the bride and the readiness of the bride for Christ's return. That you'll find us at the leadership of the Holy Spirit saying in those occasions we need to that it's not okay. Lord, forgive us from glad-handing each other for decades and getting in our cars and driving home and talking over lunch about how upset we're with other people. Or how messed up other people are. Lord, 
forgive us for doing that in front of tomorrow's church. Or may our children see us as true here as they see us on Tuesday morning, on Thursday evening, on Saturday at the ball game. They see as genuine lovers. And I pray that our love will look like Christ. Lord, there's too much at stake. Just pray that you'll work this in us. I pray that ultimately every single one of us will be these incredible students of Christ's love. Watching every move, every word, every contour of every sermon, of every healing, of every drop of blood. We can understand what love looks like and that we'll love well. And that in the, as a result of that, there'll be a bunch of salty, aromatic, otherworldly lovers in Greenville. Lord, show us what biblical love looks like and prepare us when a good part of the world says, no thanks. When a good part of the world says, talk to the hand. Lord, find us lovingly faithful. Lord, I'm thankful that in that context that some will say that's a sweet aroma. And some will say that's the aroma of life. And I need somebody searching me. I need people walking with me and knowing me. I need to be known because there's too much at stake. I have a wandering heart. I need my heart bound to thee by grace and by the work of your people in our lives. Lord, I pray that you work that in every single one of us. That is not coming naturally. Lord, we are so thankful for grace. We are thankful for that judicial decision that you have already made that there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Lord, show us what it means to be in Christ Jesus. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.